now. Hi, welcome to Infinite Leaders Live. I'm Lewis Keynes. Our why is simple, to be better educators and to be better humans. We want to support and encourage infinite learning for everybody, regardless of role or rank, to be willing to listen and learn and share. I'm joined by my pal, Alan Dunstan. Thanks, Lewis. Really looking forward to diving deeper into understanding how leaders with an infinite mindset translate this across to their teams. We want to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses. We want real life lessons from real life people with real life experience. And we're recording live, so there's always a few mistakes along the way. It's raw, it's rugged, but we're getting there and we're improving. Uh, we'd love your feedback, so please get in touch. We fully believe in, in what we're doing and we're determined to be better as well. So please let us know if you have any thoughts or comments. You can find us on Instagram. IGTV has all our episodes, our YouTube channel. Um, you can find Alan and I's opinion on Twitter and also at www.theinfinitelearners.com. So listen, learn and share with your colleagues and friends. Alan, let's get stuck in and introduce today's guest. Yeah, today's guest is Ryan Campbell. He's the High School Vice Principal of Curriculum Learning at Jakarta Intercultural School. Before that, he was the Deputy Head at British School Manila, and we are delighted to have Ryan on the show. So get your pens and papers ready. No doubt there'll be some absolute gems of wisdom. And can we start, <laughs> Ryan, by just telling us a little bit about your journey to where you are now, please? Um, There's always gems of wisdom, isn't there? There's always gems of wisdom. Uh, well, just a, just a really broad uh, bio. I've been in a pretty much spent most of my adult life in Southeast Asia, apart from three years in China. Um, I, I got to Asia in, in 2001. I think I was 24, 25 then. I spent most of my time in Indonesia, um, two years in Manila, and the three years in China I mentioned. And, uh, you know, I, I absolutely love the place. I love the region. I love the people and, and the culture and the history and everything about it. Um, in terms of work now, I'm very lucky. Well, I was very lucky. I was incredibly lucky with the job in Manila and the school there, and that was a, an incredibly, uh, I would say, an incredibly strong foundation in terms of starting the more kind of senior posts. And really, I, I do reflect on that quite a lot. I look, I look back on that a lot. And then from there, the job there. Um, to the job I'm now, in many ways, very similar. Manila, there was probably a little bit, there was, yeah, I would say probably more in terms of the whole school things to do with the, the PD and, and things. Whereas the, the, the size of JIS, uh, it's such a big school that the high school is very much, you know, its own entity. And uh, whether it will be so big after the break, I'm not sure with the impact of COVID. But uh, yeah, and it's been really an amazing experience to work in more of, you know, um, although an international school as well, more of an American style high school. Um, although I'm sure the American teachers tell me it's very different from what an actual American high school is like as well. So it gives you kind of overview of, of how I've got where I am. Yeah, thanks Ryan. Um, just tell us then, what inspires you to get out of bed every day? Um, Okay, that, now that's, a, that's, a, that's an absolutely great question because I'm not sure if I could actually pick one single thing. I, if, I had, if I had to sum it up, I would say certainly, uh, and this, this is going to make me sound very one-dimensional, certainly it works always sort of in the back of my mind. 
and I'm all and I'm always sort of thinking a little bit about it. So when I wake up in the morning, there's a kind of a focus kind of uh, kicks in. Like I'm, I'm not, I mean, I, I couldn't really tell you what my morning routine is. I couldn't tell you about brushing my teeth or eating my breakfast. I'm, I'm sure I must do these things, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm very much the mind's already kind of moved towards the office. So um, in, terms, in terms of what I look forward to in the morning, very much, um, it's hard to pin it more on one particular thing so much as I very much have that feeling of, of that's where I'm meant to be right now. That's where I kind of belong. And uh, not being there, I'd feel I was missing th something. And I actually find the same in longer holidays, I start to feel that as well. I feel I'm missing something uh, as well. So it's, I would definitely say, oddly, uh, and this is probably quite a West Coast Scottish thing to, to say, is I, I kind of do identify myself a bit through my work. And I think teaching is unique like that as well. I think teaching is one of those jobs where you, you kind of go through and, and you can say, well, actually, I, I am proud I, I did that. Whether you're in a, the private sector or the public sector, it has a meaning that transcends just, um, you know, going to work for the salary or, or, or whatever. And, and even though I've got friends I was at school with are, are much more highly paid, I'm not sure they could honestly say they have the same sense of meaning and purpose uh, that education has. I'm not saying it always has, but I'm saying, saying that there is, there's, a, there, there's definitely something in there um, that, that does give it that kind of, the vocational nature to the job more than just it's a job. Can, can you pinpoint what that meaning is for you, Ryan? Um, personally, for me, it's the idea of, uh, and this is probably my history teaching background here, is definitely that idea of connection backwards to the tradition that you're um, and when I say tradition I do I mean it I mean in the grandest sense I mean we all kind of make our own myths and, and we all kind of make our own way of finding purpose I think education gives you so many streams that you can do that and um, for me personally it's the idea that I'm part of this tradition of education from the western and the eastern traditions uh, that goes back thousands of years and, and that I'm doing something in that, uh, albeit in my own very minor way, and uh, you want to leave it slightly, at least have contributed something. I mean, something that, there's so many examples of that, but uh, one of the things that caught my eye a few years ago, and really, I'm always like, well, you know, I'm a bit of a magpie, you know, I, I, I read lots of things, and I, things that I find interesting, I grab it and think about it and chew on it. And well, I really liked reading um, one of my favorite philosophers, Philosophers, is he? I suppose, depending, he has a lot of critics. Is Nazim Taleb, and it's you know the idea of of uh, the Lindy, that, that where ideas age backwards. Well, that's that's what I'm getting at here with the, in education. That tradition, it's, so something new is more likely to die, right? Whereas something old is more likely to last as long as it's been. Well, we come from a very old tradition indeed. Um, you know, if you go in the West, you're going all the way back to uh, Socrates or, or go earlier if you want. In the East, you're going to Confucius, you know, uh, there, there's, some, there's got to be, there's something there. There's something grander and, and noble there that, that if, you wanted, if you wanted to identify yourself with, um, you definitely could. And to give you that purpose about getting up uh, in bed, uh, getting out of bed and going to work. I saw, um, I was back to the magpie idea, I was, I was, I was reading, uh, it must have been about 
six months ago, maybe a year, but um, a bit of a beautiful bit of research that kind of summed up the point here. It was Carton, it was about um, NASA, sense making and leadership. And uh, it was this idea of the, the, the title of it, I forget the exact title, but it was, I'm not, um, uh, I'm not mopping floors, I'm putting a man on the moon or something. And it was basically about how Kennedy, uh, uh, during the moon landings, it was an organizational science piece of work about sense making and leadership. But when I read that title, I thought I have to read this because it's exactly what I'm, I'm kind of, what I'm talking about here. This idea where how you interpret the, the boring humdrum parts of the job and, uh, you know, marking your books and, and doing, giving comment, the same feedback comments you've probably given hundreds of times before. It's about taking that, and now you've given hundreds of times before, but for that individual student, it's completely new. It's, it's something new for them. That lesson you've taught a lot before, um, it's new for them. And when I was reading that, that, I'll send it to you if you're interested, the, the Carton article, it'll probably appeal to both of you as well, but just that idea of, of taking the, the, the humdrum and the parts of the job that can, can get people down in any profession, um, but connecting it to something grander and more noble. And, and, and the example I gave you there was about the, the time. Sorry, go on again. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. We could listen to you all day. I'm just thinking in terms of if, if I'm listening to you right there, is there a suggestion that everybody's playing a small role to contribute towards something that's a, a greater good? Is, is this the kind of thing that you're looking at? Absolutely. I think one of the, um, one of the things I took away one of the things I took away from Manila, um, I took many things away from Manila, as I mentioned. But one of the things I'll never uh, forget was, um, was I think it must be my first assembly or whichever one it was at the end of the year, where the the cleaners were called up onto the stage and got the, the huge cheer, and all the groups and the subcontractors were all brought up, and the gardeners and everything. And I suddenly thought, and they saw that there, the, exactly what I'm talking about, like, like the, the parts of the job, and um, I mean, I, I couldn't do what they do, um, but the, the connection to the grander mission there, and community as well. Um, sorry, go on again. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic, Ryan, and I fully agree with you, and it's one of the things I'll miss heavily about BSM is that sense of community. I, I love the magpie. Uh, that's something I'm going to take with me. That's, a, that's my gem already. Um, I, I'm certainly a magpie. I'll take things from everywhere. I'm interested <laughs> in now. Is, uh, <laughs> I, what I'd like to know then is what are your little guiding principles and core values that you've sort of got from your range of areas that you study and you read? And then what do you then do as a leader to, to promote those values? Uh, Okay, that's, that's a cracker. And uh, I would say sometimes, um, sometimes you promote values not by doing them yourself, but by creating the circumstances for them. Uh, so, for example, I'm not necessarily, you know, the warmest person in the world, uh, you know, but I would always make sure that there, were, there was someone there that, 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 that could play that role. So when I say... Uh, um, it's, so that's the first principle I'll get across, I would say there, is not to try and be 
a kind of hero or brilliant at everything. Um, I would even um, I would even regard that as as a positive thing. I would regard that as a, a weakness. Um, because if you're a senior leader, I mean, it's, everyone tries to do that when they're younger, but if you're a senior leader trying to do that, you've absolutely missed the point. Because the point of you as a senior leader is to assemble the circumstances. You, you, you're the gardener, you know, you're not one of the, the products. You're, your job is to make sure, and when I say gardener, I don't mean a monoculture, you know, it's not a, a palm oil plantation. We're talking more of like, like you know the Tom Sherrington, the, the, the rainforest thing where there's lots of different things going on. Well, a bit like that, but your, your job your job is to create the circumstances there. So I guess that's the first point, is, is not to try and be the hero, not to try and be good at things. But and now the flip side of that, and I'm not sure if this is, in fact, this is, I was gonna say, is it the same point or is it a different one? Let's make it a different one. You have to be, you, at all times, you have to be aware that you can, you're probably wrong. Right, not you personally, but that, now this doesn't mean you can have doubt, and I'll get to that in a minute. Doubt's a luxury that you cannot afford sometimes, um, but you should always have um, the idea in your mind that you can be wrong. Now, not you have to take it beyond being the idea. You have to put in actual checks to see if you're wrong. So, for example, a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, have someone there." That, that, that can tell you if, if you're wrong, well, they, but they might be wrong too. They might not know, or they might be, you know. So I don't actually necessarily agree with that. That's the old, I think, it's Eisenhower idea that, um, was it Eisenhower or MacArthur, I forget, one of the, the famous American generals, um, there was, you know, if, if we're all in agreement, if we're all thinking the same th thing, someone's not thinking. Well, in practice, that doesn't work because people do, I find in big meetings, they very much do tend to defer to the senior uh, opinion even if they're doing it subconsciously. So that's not gonna work for you as, a, as an up and coming senior leader. And anyone who tells you the opposite, well, they're probably kidding themselves. So, <laughs> so you, want, you want to put in place, when you're planning things, you want to put in place some more objective measures. Um, and you also want to have a very healthy respect um, for, uh, for critics. Now, don't listen to them or let them get you down or anything. But listen to them in the sense of if you know if you've got those critics, they're going to find your um, they're going to find the weak spots in your thinking, your argument faster than anything. You know, faster than any consultant you could pay for. I mean, that's why I quite like uh, I quite like Twitter for that because it's such a it's such a savage uh, <laughs> it's such a savagely aggressive environment. It's particularly educational sometimes, um, or maybe that's just how I behave on it. Uh, but the, the <laughs> that any flaws in your thinking get pressure tested very, very quickly. And I, I find that very useful. So I guess that would be my next one. Um, make sure you're putting in place kind of objective checks uh, to say, you know, like I always assume that you could be wrong. I think that's incredibly healthy. But like I said, what's not healthy it, it is that element of doubt. And that leads me on to, I, how many am I allowed? How many do you want? Three or four? I've probably used up with three of them. As many as you want, mate. I'm sure you could go all day. <laughs> Another one I would say is, is um, vital, I find, um, which I actually got from, um, it's one of the boys, boys schoolboy Latin class, but it was a battle, and for, I forget what it was, the Romans and the, 
I think it was the Etruscans or Samnites. Let's say it was the Samnites for now. I assume I'm wrong. It doesn't matter. Romans against someone. Um, Somebody um, will tell you you're wrong. Yeah, that, exactly. Uh, the cod, so it was, it was this idea of the Caudine Forks. And the Caudine Forks was the name of the battle, but it always, it always stuck in my mind because of this. It wasn't the Romans were defeated, but the, the, whoever it was they were against had their option of making them friends or destroying them utterly. And what they did was they made them pass under the yoke of submission, but in the end, so they humiliated them. But in the end, they came back and, and wiped, um, you know, wiped out whoever it was and made a mistake. So the two options were, um, you know, make friends with them or wipe them out. But they didn't do either. Um, they humiliated them and left them intact. Now, I, I, what did I t- So that, that actually, that's kind of these things that stuck in my mind is, is the idea. And what I took from that was the middle ground is not a safe place to be. And when, when I was... Uh, Certainly in senior leadership these days, I find stay away, absolutely stay away from middle ground when you're making those decisions. By all means, have checks and balances and that you're wrong. And this is where I mean about doubt can be deadly, but watch out for the middle ground. Watch out for caution sometimes. It's not what it's cracked up to be. And here's why. Um, I mean, you're, I suppose you're being cautious in the macro scale by putting in the checks to see if you're wrong. But basically, you want to make sure you do commit to something. Now, by all means, if you've got those checks in, you can change your mind. But if you constantly wait before deciding, you're never going to learn anything. Right? Because now there are times where the, the situation is so unclear, okay, it would be foolish to commit. So there's always a, um, but generally, if you don't start things, uh, if you don't start things, you, you, you end up, chasing your tail and in the end you're gonna to have to start anyway so i think that's a, a a really important point that i've kind of picked up over the time um and what do i mean another thing i'll give you one more then another thing i do quite a lot is i do tend to and this does seem to be a bit different from other people um like i mean you've had simon man i've not listened to simon man yet but simon man and i completely disagree on this point he he always he loves the idea you know all teachers are i don't know if he's maybe he's changed his mind but he used to uh, teachers are all passion players and 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 you know they, they all take it personally well that's fine right good for them but if you're a senior leader that's not you cannot do that right nothing is personal but if you're making anything personal by definition you're not being professional Right, so you cannot take things personally, and and what I and you also similar to that is um, when you uh, by not taking things personally, you have it allows you to, to to be open to being wrong. So I would say not taking things to, to having a having a grander idea of, of of what professionalism is and what allows you to reframe things like that, not as Weakness in asking a head of department for advice. Well, why should you ask them for advice? They're the specialists. Like if I was, I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, we're putting together, there's some new things have come in from the PE, uh, particularly with regards to PE, um, for the, from J- Jakarta for opening up with the, the COVID regulations. Of course, I'm going to work very closely with the department on that. I'm not going to impose something because um, I know they're the specialists. I'm confident enough. You know, I'm, I, everything is that back to that point. It's not personal. I don't have to be a, a lone hero 
because I wouldn't regard that as, as professional. So very different from Simon Mann, unless he's changed. But, uh, uh, so, some, some really good points there, Ryan. You know, you talked about trying not to be a specialist in everything. And, and, and if you are, then you're probably doing something wrong. And then the three core values you talked about there, um, I found really interesting that you're probably wrong. So set up some way of being of objective measures or being challenged along the way. Don't go for a middle ground, just start it. Make a start or don't make a start. Don't, don't, don't hesitate in between. And, and in senior leadership, nothing is personal. I think there are three really cool takeaways there. What, what really intrigues me is when you're um, line managing and, and you're leading teaching and learning, you're line managing heads of curriculum um, and, and other roles in school, what does that look like? How, how, do you, how do you form those and, and create that environment? Yeah. Uh, so, so you want to get into the toolbox. Well, okay. So in terms, in terms of the toolbox, uh, one of the things I, um, I'd actually done it one of my, I was familiar with the kind of solution focused approach, but it was in Manila and with John Hendon where I was, I was familiar from it just an academic sense because I'd had to do, um, as part of a master's course, it had to do a thing on, on career counseling and coaching, which of course, perfect fit for senior leadership. But do you remember that John, the first John Hendon course? I don't know what that is, five years ago now, more than that, something, six years ago, I can't remember. Anyway, what John did, which I really liked, um, was, now obviously I saw it differently from him. He was using it particularly in his context about working, you know, suicide prevention and, and that sort of thing. But when I was hearing him talk, I was suddenly thought, this would fit perfectly for running workplace meetings, for conversations with the parents. It would need adjusted, of course, but the toolkit and the actual toolkit. So that's what got, got me kind of, of started. And I promise I'll answer the question. I just wanted to give a little bit of, of context because we were all there. Um, so that, that, that got me started those years ago in, in developing the specific toolkit, which so very much comes from the solution-focused approach. But then I realized, uh, I think probably towards the end of Manila, or definitely when I started at, at GIST, that solution-focused toolkit is fantastic when it's you and one, one person. It's fantastic with you in a small group. Now at the organizational level, and remember GIST is very, very big, you needed something else. And that was where I moved. I wanted something in the same like the vein, the same philosophical vein. Um, and that was where the appreciative inquiry idea came in, uh, which is again, very solution focused. And that kind of gave me my, 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 broadly my set of tools there. So I had for my small group, my individual work, um, something that, I mean, it doesn't look like solution focused. Now, I mean, John, we had, actually had John Hendon over at GIST, I think my first year here. Um, and, and that was really interesting to talk to him about some of the, the changes I'd made to it. And it's, it's kept changing because it's something I reflect on and, and use a lot. And then the appreciative inquiry was something just we're using. And, um, and then uh, that's definitely added a lot to what I do. So pre appreciative inquiry at the systematic, and you're going to say, right, get to, the, get to the tools. What would that look like? Okay, so first thing I would do is I always look to get solutions. Um, so that doesn't mean to say that that you want to dismiss the, 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 the problem out of hand. So I'm probably, I'm probably a bit more detail focused than most. Um, now the, the detail focused part, 
Um, one of the things, the five o'clock rule, I don't know if you remember that, but the five o'clock rule is something I've never really forgotten. For me, that's one of the most important, one of the minor, but most important to me, uh, solution-focused ideas where you make sure the session, half of it, or sorry, under half of it is on the problem. Now, I use that to say that you should always give you know, a, a relatively good chunk to explore the initial problem. But then right at the start, so when I start meetings and things, I'll outline norms. When I use meeting norms, when I establish norms for things, if, the, if we're looking at an issue or a problem, I would say we're only gonna look at this for this because then I want to move to solutions. And that idea, that idea that solutions are not connected to the problem has been really, really important for me. And um, appreciative inquiry works similar, but it's more of an organizational level. Here's the problem, how can we work through together to explore that? Then, then I took another thing, I was reading one of the Heath Brothers books, and this is back to Magpie idea again. I thought, oh, that's gonna fit perfectly into my game. It was the idea of looking for the bright spots. Is there in, and it's, it's virtually in the social post approach as it is, but it is this idea of who's making it work right now? Or if it's not working, who's making it less bad? And what are they doing? And then that is that getting right into the details? So I found that very good as well. So um, how it would look like with me, first of all, I would uh, possibly... If, if there was an immediate issue, spend some time talking about, um, you know, whatever it was, then I would spend some time um, trying to find out, is there any, anyone not having this problem? Now, this is, is a problem. Um, and then I would go, I really, one of the other things I took from Solution Focus that I've, I've done so often now, it's become virtually automatic, is the scaling questions. I think they're absolutely fantastic. And again, when I was talking about Carton earlier and, and I do that, man, that's a brilliant way of, once you've established what the fire, the fire mode is, right? Once you've established, and I know people hate to talk about vision, so let's not call it vision. Let's just talk about it, what, you know, what success would look like in this in six months or something. And then call that a 10 and, and then work back from what number we are. And then if, if they say one, how do we go on from there? Why do I like that so much? Well, it means that by the end of that first two or three sessions, I have my kind of, as a group, we have our long-term goals, but more importantly, we have our immediate term, what we're going to go on. Um, so I would say it looks like that. Now, um, I, and then of course, all those circuit breakers I talked about would, would go in on the process. Some of those would be informal. Some of those might be more formal uh, as well. Um, I'm always conscious of time. Uh, I've made, I'm someone who's made an awful lot of mistakes. So that's a really, that's a big advantage. Uh, so I can think of where I've made things go wrong before uh, and what mistakes I've made. So they're also very good circuit breakers. Uh, go on, I'm interrupted. No, I, I, you just talked about that. I want to know what your biggest mistake is, Ryan, and, and what you learned from it. Um, well, there's, been, there's been so many that to pick. What would be the biggest? Uh, I would possibly the biggest in the generic, in the, the group of mistakes would be years and years ago, I used to take things very personally and perhaps now that's why I'm completely the opposite. So perhaps, perhaps that one. Um, but I would say, and maybe the thing about the lone hero would be another group of mistakes I made when, when I, I was younger, whereas now I wouldn't even bother trying to be a, a, 
uh, you know, expect to know things. Having said that, I will always try and find out, just if nothing else, to show respect to the individual subject disciplines um, or areas or whatever it is, if it's pastoral. Um, an individual biggest mistake, right, let's try and think. Uh, I would, I'm trying to think of a funny one. Uh, <laughs> 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 I, might, I might need some time to think of, uh, of a good one, but I mean, there's been, like I said, there's been so many. I would say some of the ones that I've most, okay, it's easier to say some of the ones that are most regretted. The ones that I've most regretted are where I've caused upset to people without meaning to. I'm slightly, um, as well, you both know me pretty well, so I can, I can come across as, as a bit cold-blooded sometimes, and um, I'm, I'm not that emotional, which I, is, is very good normally. It's, I'm usefully cold-blooded, as I've been described as by someone uh, before, but I, I sometimes, I, um, as a direct result of that, I, I have missed connections with people that maybe they were looking for a bit of support or maybe they wanted some time to talk about something and I didn't pick up on it and I've later realized that actually I should have picked up on that and, it, and I've caused me a little problem bigger. Um, another one, another big mistake I've made is um, I, I sometimes, and I still do, uh, you know, get accused of being a, a bit too interventionist. I'll, I'll go quick. Well, that probably is related to some very big mistakes I've made in the past where um, I have let little problems get very big when I, I should have dealt with it. I should have been completely clear right at the start and I thought it would just sort itself out. Um, another big mistake, oh, I've made a lot of mistakes, right? Uh, <laughs> another, big, <laughs> another, big mistake, uh, another big mistake I've definitely um, made over the years is, is not being clear on, on things like norms at the start and how we, how we do things here. I didn't take culture very seriously, I think, initially. Um, I think I probably came out of Manila uh, much more sensitive to that, much more aware of that. And, and it, it, it was things like, you know, the assemblies and things, I think, that, that probably made me much better at that. Um, I don't know, that's a lot of mistakes, but, but there's been a lot of mistakes. I still make mistakes all the time. I mean, the worst mistake to make is not to do anything. I mean, that's my whole point about the Codine Forks again. If you don't do anything, if you don't commit, you're never gonna you're never gonna move forward. And you know what? It might not work out, and that's okay. And if if you are in a situation where it doesn't work out, then you're probably not in a, a, a you know a healthy environment for growing. And um, you have to be in a situation where you know the, the kind of mistakes are encouraged, and there isn't a kind of blame game culture. And that's why moving solutions and abrasive inquiry do connect so well. And I, I, I really like that aspect of just as well. Yeah. Uh, tell us a bit more about the um, the culture and the norms that you you work with at the moment, Ryan, and that you have on a day to day basis. Uh, well, my favourite, my number one, that uh, the number one, which I don't, I mean, I'm sure we must have had this in Manila, but I don't associate it with Manila, is assume positive intent. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. We've heard that and one before. I find that that is absolutely brilliant. Uh, uh, it just, this idea of, particularly with emails, I mean, apply it to anything, but e emails are, are notoriously deadly, right, for senior leaders, because when you send them, people, uh, you don't mean anything by it, but there's no tone of voice, and people, what did you mean by that, or what did she mean by that? Also, when people send them to each other, 
they can react to that. Or when you get one from someone else, you can react. Always, you know, blah, blah, blah. Adding those magic words, assuming positive intent in, takes all of that off the table. It means that reacting to it is actually a luxury. Now, there are some people who are deliberately rude and <laughs> but that's okay because you've established, you know, you'll have your norms for that as well, like yeah, your communication policy or whatever. And then if you have to speak to the person, you, you, you've got, you know, you can say, look, that's not how we do it here. We do look for a bit of warm. Is that something that's embedded, Ryan? So when you talked about, you know, do you, do you go as far as actually writing on there, assume positive intent on your emails, or is that just understood? It's, I don't write it on emails. Um, it's definitely understood. Um, I mean, it's definitely part of the culture, but I would say, yeah, I mean, we do at the start of every year with new staff. Uh, that would be one of the things we would get across. It even comes up in our interviews as well. So I would say that's, that would be one uh, that I've really taken from the just culture. And apologies if that was one of ours, it'd be the same as well. It could well have been if it'd be a same purpose. Um, the second one is moving to solutions, which was definitely part of what we did at BSM as well. I think the only difference between, I mean, in many ways, BSM was perfect preparation for JIST uh, because they're very similar in that philosophy, but the scale of JIST is different because it's just so big. Uh, so the adding the appreciative inquiry aspect of, of let's, let's explore this together um, at an organizational level has been excellent. I would say that's another thing. What else about the JIST culture? I would say um, when you walk in, in fact, let me give a better, I'm going to give you an example of walking in every day, and, and, but here's a better example. We just had to do a drive-through graduation, right? Now, graduation, like a lot of American schools, is a huge thing here. And this was very much, it was like the, you know, the psychic fabric of the school had been torn asunder by not having this graduate, you know, this closing graduation um, ceremony. And, and there, was, there was many, many noble attempts to, um, you know, to kind of fill the void caused by COVID there. There, there was a wonderful, uh, the high school principal did this wonderful drive. Uh, the kids would come in and do a photo with him and they'd pick up their, their goodie bag. It wasn't called a goodie bag. It was called some American, but whatever, a goodie bag of, of stuff and the yearbook. But there, but there was definitely that that that, that wound there uh, caused by the, the the graduation. And just at the very end, the head of school and the deputy had just and you know and with the absolutely wonderful local staff, just got together with the team of people there on the ground and you know all these people involved and 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 all the leadership from the, the divisions that were there. And they put together this drive-through assembly, the drive-through um, graduation. And I was away down at one of the stations as they came in, uh, and we all kind of had to get up for the very last one. We all went running up. There was just every, and I, as this, the, the, the last student crossed the graduation stage, all the local staff, everyone was there cheering. It was the most incredible thing. And then someone told me afterwards, the, the, the gardeners and the cleaners and everything, they'd been doing that for virtually every single one. And, I thought, well, that's just, it was a whole day of it. I mean, that's just incredible. And it was that level of, I think that's the next thing I've taken away. And this was a BSM, but not taking 
anyone for granted who works in the organization. And I don't mean not taking them for granted in terms of, um, although I do mean this as well, like in terms of basic manners and being polite, but I also mean just taking the time to stop and talk to them and, um, and taking the time to ask and, and, and not just talk yourself, but actually to listen and ask. And you find out some really interesting things as well. You made, you made a really interesting point earlier. You know, if you go back to, to something you mentioned earlier, you said that you know you you've struggled at times with stopping and pausing and making those connections. How how do you how do you help yourself to do that now? How, how have you improved in that? Um, I, I make it a, a again probably back to the co-blooded element. I make it a personal. I make it a goal. Uh, I, I I say right, okay, you're not you're not good at this, Ryan. Uh, this is what you're going to need to do this. Um, so uh, I then start to really try and, and so when I come in in the morning, um, and it's always about getting, well, as, as is everything, getting the first one um, in the morning sets the kind of mental pattern for the day. So as I come in, if the first security guard or the first people I meet, take the time there and then that kind of sit, no matter what you're, if you're running late, and I'm always running late. <laughs> I'm always late for something. Uh, the um that uh yeah that that seems to be a really good and also i'm very 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 lucky with with the office staff uh, i have because they keep me human they they come and talk to me and make, and make sure my indonesian doesn't completely atrophy <laughs> can, can i just take it back a step as well and it, it's something that i'm quite interested in is when you're in that leadership role you talk about not taking things personally what what strategies then do you put in place if you've made an unpopular decision and someone's getting at you and oh, you're going home and you're taking it out on your wife and your kids as you have your face on? How do you what strategy do you have then to to make sure that you are not taking it personally? Um, oh, I've got a lot. Um, one of the things um, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. Uh, one of so basically when I get sent. Uh, I'll tell you a story, right? So uh, there was a new person came in and they said, um, oh, we're, we're going to make the, the, the feedback survey of the day for the staff. We're going to make it non-anonymous. And they firmly believed that that was good. Uh, and they had very noble reasons for this, you know, um, that we're a professional organization. People should be make their personal opinion. And I, I was immediately crestfallen because, you know, probably why I like Twitter, I want that full unvarnished. And just to prove, you know, I, I, I'm looking for the real critique. So that's the first thing I would say is the reframe. Um, take everything you get. So reframe any criticism as, you know, something positive. And remember, I talked about the check and balances. Yeah. There's an immediate way to reframe right there is it doesn't mean to say they're right but you need to make sure that you're approachable enough that they will criticize you. So the first thing you reframe is it's a compliment they're coming to you to get stuck in. Not so, therefore there's, there's less psychic weight on you to take home because you've seen it, you've reframed as a compliment. Mm -hmm. The second thing that decreases the, the kind of psychic weight of the criticism is not only is it a compliment they've come to give you both barrels, but that actually this is one of your feedback loops because you know, you know you're, Donald Rumsfeld got mocked for his unknown unknowns. Um, but actually, he had a real point, and it, it was back to the kind of Nazim Talib there. 
you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. uh, having that, having those different perspectives coming in, and, and so there's another reframe that will lift the psychic weight off you. In fact, um, I would just add to that a bit and say that sometimes that criticism will save your bacon, right? Because you have made a mistake that's possibly because you're not meant to or you're in a bubble or whatever that you didn't mean or, or an unintended consequence that you didn't mean to happen. And someone comes in and is comfortable coming in and closing off a store and, and telling you what's what you will oh, hang on. So there's another way. So the, to sum up, the reframe of it is very, very important in minimizing the, the carrying the, the damage later um, back home. And then the other thing is to develop, and this is another probably weird, uh, develop your own rituals around it to show how important it is to you. So here's one of mine. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying copy this. Uh, <laughs> one of my, uh, I have, there's a pin board beside my desk. I, I wish I was in the office actually and I would turn the computer and show you and you could see. And this is where I've made, uh, where people have, uh, you know, have, have, uh, you know like that, that feedback survey I talked about before, there was someone to put on there once um, and I thank them very much for this. Uh, so this is not a criticism. Uh, they, they put, uh, Ryan is a horrible presenter. <laughs> and uh, I thought, and wow. I looked at it and I said, oh, that's fantastic. So I blew it up, I printed it and it's on my wall, right? Wow. It's literally, it's on this wall. And you can call it my wall of shame, call it what you want. But the point is, it's, I mean, it's a kind of negative trophy wall, but it, um, and it wasn't, it genuinely wasn't there to mock the person at all. It was there to mock me uh, by myself, I suppose, if anyone, but actually it was just to give me another goal. And um, there's, I mean, there's lots on there. There's, there's, uh, there's people send me cartoons of, there's one, another one that was on there. I think about my, my penchant for being late for meetings uh, was uh, some cartoon where, you know, how about never, it's never a good time for you. And I thought, right, that's what it, there's another reminder right there, but I'll need to try and be a bit more timely. Uh, so lots of things like that. Um, so the trophy, the, it's a negative trophy, we probably need a word for it, but the negative trophy will, um, remind me to take a picture of it for you. Uh, it's it's so it. powerful, Ryan. I'm just thinking about my wall's not big enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really Great wall of China. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool, Ryan, how you, you've really turned that into something that you talked earlier about making so many mistakes where you took something personally. And now you're using that in that kind of context where that's just fuel for you now and that's fine. And it's not fuel that causes anger or drives, drives you through passion or because of frustration, but it seems to be really because, you know, that's something that you've taken on board, you've depersonalized it and it's something that you can work on and that's fair enough. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. It's about redefining what professionalism means to you. And, uh, and for me, it's just uh, like, there's another way, like uh, I'll, I'll do it. A live reframe is, is that even taking that stuff home would be by definition unprofessional because you take it home, right? So, yeah, uh, so then immediately, okay, right. How am I gonna do, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna walk up the stairs two times uh, before I go, I'm like, you know, what do I need to do to, to what? and it's, I think that's something, uh, that idea of symbols and rituals, um, 
to define ourselves. I mean, that's, I suppose that's all the way back to my very first point I was talking about in, you know, you, you kind of have to make your own, your own, you have to make your own foundation myth about your own job and your own profession. And then to make that foundation myth work for you, you have to build in your own symbols and rituals. And trust me, the more you, the better you get at that with yourself, the better you get at doing that at, at an organizational level at the small group or because those things are crucial. I mean, that's actually, that the idea of symbols just is, is big on symbols, it's batiks and, and dragons, but it's, it's, it's tying those symbols to, to real things about yourself. Um, and again, this comes back to something I read years ago, uh, which actually seems is sitting at my desk. So maybe I'd plan to read it again. Uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, the, the hero's journey idea. Um, yeah, you, you definitely want to add, add that bit of, of um, I don't know, is existential or metaphysical gravitas to your job. It just, it helps you get out of, like you said in the start, gets you out of bed in the morning. It gives you that, that purpose. Right, I think we're going to be winding it down, Ryan. There's some, some brilliant stuff coming through. Um, I'm looking forward to this question, actually, as, you, as a history man yourself. Which three leaders in history would you love to go out for a meal with? Oh, uh, right. Um, <laughs> uh, my would probably, uh, well, Genghis Khan, of course. Really? Uh, <laughs> I imagine everybody uh, would see him. Um, then, yeah, Genghis Khan, for sure. Uh, Winston Churchill, because supposedly, uh, you know, he, Brilliant at the after dinner. I've got to choose them for the. It's for going out for the evening, right? It's yeah, you're going out for a bit of a bit of a drink, bit of a meal. They'd be right. brilliant. So, so Genghis Khan obviously use way around uh, and I out. So he's he's a must. Winston Churchill for sure. And I think it's a bit gender imbalanced right now. So <laughs> who, would be, who would be a? Maybe some diversity. Uh, I suppose someone. Um, some, oh, for my third one, can yeah. I have a completely random, it's like non-chosen, uh, someone completely random? Because yeah. I, think, I think this is really important. So I would say, uh, I've got someone from Asia, I've got someone from Europe. So I would say someone from, um, uh, you know, who would it be? Some, someone from North America or, or something, but some, you know, someone completely different. Um, and the reason for that is the idea of, and this is by back to Twitter and back to reading, I suppose as well, is you have to keep your eye always open for, for serendipity. And you can't be the magpie if you don't, if you always read the same things or you always talk to the same people. So can I, so I, I would give for my third choice, I would give it someone else to choose for me, right? Oh, so um, yeah. so that, that's my third choice, because so I'm keeping, I'm keeping that, that random. Otherwise, I'll just choose the same, the same thought patterns that, that I would do ever. Um, so, like, for, um, I mean, I've, I've, I'm always maxing out my Twitter. I'm only allowed to follow whatever it is, 5,000 people or something. But I always try and, every so often, I'll, I'll delete a few people when I hit the max and just pick, like, really completely randomly just to see. And I think that's, I think trying to keep that, especially as you get older, you become more fixed. I think that's really important. You have to keep room for some weirdness to hit you. 
and, and establish what, by, by weirdness, I mean weirdness to you, not weirdness to them, <laughs> weirdness to how you do things. Um, otherwise you become very fossilized, or I do anyway, I become very fossilized very quickly. Tell, tell us then, Ryan, what's the, the book that you're reading at the moment? Is that one out of left field that, that challenges your views or is that one that's uh, very much in line with your own? You would be, well, I'll just... There is no book. There are, there are books. So we'll just get Kindle. I'll just I'll read out the, the ones that are currently on the go. All right? I'm actually <laughs> kicking them off. There's uh, The Enigma of Reason which is about, an, it's basically an evolutionary psychological argument of why we've evolved to argue with each other, which obviously is uh, Andrew, Andrew Roberts. No, I, don't, no, I, don't, I don't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Roberts' biographer of Churchill, uh, the Job Sheraton, the, 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 the work-throughs, the walk-throughs, sorry, that's uh, really good actually, three pounds, uh, that was, but I've really enjoyed them. They're, they're actually, I'm, I'm getting a lot out of them, even though I think they're, maybe aimed more at, um, you know, beginner teachers. Uh, so I would disagree, I think that's great. Then the next one is, what is global history? And I've been, uh, finally, a book I've been told to read over the holidays called Embracing Complexity. That's every holidays, the senior leaders that just get told, you know, they're given a, a shared book to read for their professional reading. And this is about embracing complexity and and uh, complex systems. And then a book, um, which one of you two uh, might have recommended, but was recommended by Tony Dickinson, our, uh, one of the counselors at our place, was uh, about the All Blacks legacy, about culture setting, yeah. which is uh, absolutely brilliant so far. And the last one on the immediate reading list, which I'm slowly getting through chapter by chapter, is a book called The Slave Trade by Hugh Thomas, which is a huge big book. And I've, I've tried to finish it about five times before and I've never managed it. So now I'm doing it a chapter a day. And oh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make so what, finish it. So what are you reading next week? <laughs> <laughs> um, Ryan, Ryan some, some, as Alan would put it, absolute gems of wisdom there. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Thanks I don't know about that. Hopefully it wasn't too boring. <laughs> Not at all. It was re really nice to get a slightly different perspective on things. Certainly some ideas we haven't heard before and, and loads to take away. So, so thanks very much for coming, uh, coming on. Um, no we, we're approaching the end, guys. So as ever, please search Infinite Leaders Live on, on YouTube and IGTV and check out our content on there. We're also pleased to announce that we'll be very soon launching on all popular podcast apps. Uh, iTunes and Spotify included so keep your eyes peeled and please share far and wide with anybody that you think will find this useful and finally please remember to visit www.theinfinitelearners.com for any articles webinars we've uh, been doing obviously this show uh, and also our weekly journal notes um, thank you very much Ryan really appreciate that um, and we'll see everybody next time cheers